About 30 years ago, Joseph Nye helped popularize the idea of soft power. Throughout the Cold War, we'd grown used to thinking about hard power, the use of the military to coerce another country's compliance. The U.S. was in a constant arms race with the Soviet Union. Ultimately, the Soviet Union's inability to keep pace with the Reagan administration's defense spending helped dissolve the country and end the Cold War without a shot being fired. But as Nye saw it, the post-Cold War world would impose an even more complex set of challenges on the United States. And hard power would be of diminishing use. The United States needed to find ways other than coercion to get other countries to want what the United States wants. That not only means other countries seeing U.S. global power as somehow legitimate, but feeling economically, culturally, and intellectually aligned with where the United States wanted to go. Amr Musa was the Secretary General of the Arab League and had previously served as Egypt's foreign minister. For years, I've heard him criticize U.S. foreign policy. And just a few weeks ago, I saw him in a talk I was giving in Cairo. Not surprisingly, his question began with a critique of U.S. foreign policy. You went to Iraq with goals about democratization, etc., and then left it to Iran. A question mark about that. That raised a lot of questions about the credibility of a foreign policy, especially of the superpower. Those question marks has harmed America a lot. But even he admits there's still something unique about the United States' ability to get other people to follow the American lead. America. America won its prestigious superpower place primarily based on the soft policy. Harvard, NASA, Hollywood, you name it. Things that attracted the attention of so many generations. Brought up with America, the films of America, the cars coming from America, the, the universities that we had. So this kind of soft power will not be affected. Amr Musa's point is one I've heard for decades throughout the region. People often dislike U.S. government policy, but that's not the only thing they think of when they think of America. Elanur Sharach is a Kuwaiti women's rights activist and associate research fellow at Chatham House. She was a Fulbright fellow with the United States following academic training in Europe. And she says pretty much the same thing. In general, the same cultural associations that I have are shared by many Kuwaitis and beyond. We all watch Netflix. We all use the same U.S.-made tech products. Certainly, there are some stereotypes about America being morally loose, and some others, they have reservations about uh, its recent politics post-Arab Spring or deep doubts about the reasons for its involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan and its withdrawal from Afghanistan. But I still think that despite all of that, many want their children to continue their education there and benefit from the opportunities inherent in an inquisitive and academically open culture. American brands are globally sought after. American education is the gold standard. Hollywood is unique in its ability to entertain and to inspire. So American culture is still as attractive around the world as it ever was before. But what makes American culture so attractive and what keeps America 
so attractive in the Middle East? And just what does that mean for American policy in the region? Welcome to the U.S. and the Middle East podcast mini-series. In this series, we talk to leading experts and former policymakers about the role of U.S. power and influence in the Middle East. I'm your host, John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair on Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we'll explore the roots of American soft power in the Middle East, tracing the story of what makes American culture, ideals, and institutions so sticky in the region and beyond. American culture and commerce might be some of the most identifiable aspects of America's soft power, but they're hardly the only source of it. The very idea of America is one of the largest sources of American soft power in the Middle East and around the world. The United States was born as a radical democratic experiment that hinged on ideals of self-determination, religious tolerance, openness, free thought, and expression. The framers of the U.S. Constitution were dreamers. They were building a city on a hill. They were building the new Jerusalem, as they often called it. America was and remains, in a sense, has an aspect of it, which is very aspirational, very transformational, which is why it is it was very attractive, uh, particularly in the early part of the 20th century, that this was really a different society. It was a society of freedom, a society of equality, a society of opportunity, a multicultural society, very much unlike European societies, which are very stratified, which are very, you know, identity-driven and so on. That's Paul Salem. Paul is half Lebanese and half American. He's a professional academic and a skilled musician, and he's now president of the Middle East Institute here in Washington. He grew up in Beirut before moving to the United States to attend Harvard University. He says, for Middle Easterners, what really set the United States apart from the rest of the world was its aspirational quality. Arabs had been dominated for centuries, first by Ottomans and then by Europeans. Americans had overthrown colonial powers. The example of the United States moving forward that drove and carried the banner for equality, liberty, and democracy, I would say. And that resonated widely throughout the Middle East and continues to resonate throughout the Middle East. And for much of the last century, the United States was happy to help that idea resonate in the Middle East. President Woodrow Wilson was a vocal supporter of self-determination for former colonies of the Ottoman Empire. So it came offering Woodrow Wilson self-determination, and it pushed back, well, against French imperial ambitions and other imperial ambitions other, or other places around the world, and was seen as kind of a progressive national determination positive force. The goodwill didn't last long. In the post-World War II environment, it immediately got caught up in the establishment of Israel, U.S. support for Israel, which was the big sort of narrative of Arab life from 1948 up until yesterday, maybe. So and the U.S. was on the wrong side of that. And you saw that very much in Beirut and Baghdad and Damascus and Cairo and all of that, that despite the original goodwill, the original sort of positivity towards America, as well as American culture and so on, it then got overtaken by the negativity of the politics 
of the region, particularly the support for Israel. But that didn't mean that the American ideal dried up with it. Instead, the same transformative ideals that defined the American image in the Middle East became the basis of movements to counter what Arab publics saw as United States meddling in the region. Western soft power, if you want, which is Western education, democratic values, which include values of nationalism and self-determination, all of that, those values carry within them the seeds of rejecting the powers, rejecting French power or American power, because they are principles of self-determination and principles of national values and so on. So in a sense, those values were the very tools that a lot of Arab movements used to fight the Americans and to fight the French. And so it's an interesting soft power, which is the cause of its own demise, as it were. Arguably, the United States itself had sown some of the seeds of resistance to U.S. government efforts in the Middle East. In the early days, most U.S. work in the Middle East wasn't government work at all. Missionaries came to the Middle East to spread American Protestantism through the Ottoman Empire, but their most enduring impact was two universities, the American University of Beirut and the American University in Cairo. Although both institutions have rich histories and their reputations have waxed and waned, they became central to elite life in both capitals and, by extension, throughout the Arab world. Growing up in Beirut, the American University of Beirut was a big presence and in many ways was a major institution which shaped what is known as Ras Beirut, a multicultural, very open society that flourished up until the Civil War of 1975. My father taught at the university and was in the sort of administration as well. I grew up in the shadow of the university, and I went to school in the International College, which was a prep school originally set up by the American University of Beirut. By the 1920s, both universities had largely shed their religious identities, but they were still the vehicle for a clear cultural message. Lisa Anderson had a four-decade career in academia, serving as president of the American University in Cairo during the Arab Spring from 2011 to 2015. Before that, she spent 10 years as the dean of the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University from 1997 to 2007. She says that those universities started to embrace a different style of education. That's what AUC and, in fact, AUB and some of the other American-style institutions in the region and around the world represent, that there's a particular way of educating people that makes them more equipped for the challenges of a professional life, a life as a citizen, as a member of a community, and so forth. So we spent a lot of time explaining that as well as doing it. And a large part of that model is to expose students to novel ways of learning and thinking. I think part of what AUC represents is this conviction that a particular kind of education is linked to the innovation and creativity that many people in the world associate with the United States. And that particular kind of education we call the liberal arts model, where you do a lot of, you know, to use a sort of athletics metaphor, a lot of cross-training. Elinu Desharach says that coming from the Middle East, that kind of an experience can be a revolutionary one. 
I spent my first semester as an undergraduate at Wellesley College. Up to that point, I've had a socially sheltered life, but I'd never been in a single sex uh, environment before, and it was both thrilling and very challenging. Uh, I stayed on campus, and in the dorms, there were these big banners with the 70 slogans like, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. I remember that I enrolled in an African-American literature class uh, where there were these passionate debates about who owned the X in the Malcolm X movie. And, you know, all these ideas about identity and appropriation. And it was the first time that I found myself immersed in an atmosphere that celebrated being a woman and a smart, ambitious woman at that in a deeply positive light. And part of that has to do with the way that American students have been taught to learn and to interact with other learners and their teachers. I think what people find appealing is a kind of informality and a lack of a sense of hierarchy. So Americans are relaxed with each other in a classroom setting, will interrupt each other, will debate with each other, and they will do that with their faculty too. So there is a sort of, you know, egalitarianness and informality about Americans in general that I think is quite off-putting at first if you come from an educational tradition where you were very deferential to the professor and so forth and so on. But as soon as you realize that this is genuine, you love it. You have to love it. It's just, it's a different way of learning. It's a more fun way of learning. That sense of egalitarianism calls back to the fundamental principles of the American experiment. But practically, it means that students in that sort of environment feel comfortable questioning authorities. And it means that American authorities are ready to be questioned. One of the things that I found even more striking than the fact that American students do tend to feel comfortable questioning authority was that the American administration of the university, American faculty, expect that. Whereas the administration of Egyptian universities, for example, typically expect deference to authority. And Americans don't expect it, even if they are in positions of authority. So when they challenged authority, we weren't particularly surprised by that. That just sort of seemed like what college kids do. And I think that was more of a surprise to the students than anything else. They expected us to crack down hard, to be hostile about that. And the idea that we said, yes, of course, you are supposed to question what we're doing. That was a real surprise. Anderson was president of AUC during protests that brought down one Egyptian president, during elections that brought in another, and then the further protests that brought down the elected president. For most of her tenure, Egypt's young people were looking at a future that was swirling with uncertainty. I think the theory of education actually does transfer pretty well. Once people understand it, they sort of find it appealing and plausible that this would mean that new things are going to happen in the course of the next 20 years. They're going to be better equipped to think creatively about whatever those new things are. Anderson said AUC was conscious of the role it was playing in those heady days. I can't say I think we really influenced the course of historical events in Egypt in any significant way. 
But I think it is true that we deliberately and self-consciously modeled what a free campus expression policy would be like. I like to think that there's a residue. I like to think that people have seen themselves operate in a different, they feel like they have more agency. They, you know, have a way that they can think of themselves acting in the world more effectively than they would have otherwise. And I think that's true. But I also think that in some respects, you can look back in that period and have people feel sort of betrayed that they were led to believe that they were going to be able to do things that that turned out not to be the case. The sense of possibility that Egyptians felt wasn't exclusively American, but it had an American flavor. For me, there's this aspirational soft power when I think of the United States, whether it's from the Hollywood movies or the political movements. There's this ability to market and promote an idea, make it catchy, simplify it, and then it, it resonates, even if it had its starting point somewhere, like the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter. Paul Salem says you can see that phenomenon in American pop culture, too. The protest music and the youth music of the 60s and 70s, which was part of a revolution in the West, had strong resonances in the Middle East, and that was very clear. That synthetic nature of American culture has made the idea of it hard to even define because it's always changing, synthesizing and blending elements from other cultures, ideas, and society into something new. But while it's hard to define, you know it when you see it. Or do you? As America has absorbed more of global culture and as global culture has absorbed more of America, are Americanization and globalization still the same thing? I think the association of the two continues to be quite strong because the origins of much of the impulse to globalization were American. I actually, however, think, for better or for worse, that globalization is sort of becoming increasingly independent of the United States and independent of things American. And if you think about social media, it's now deployed in ways that don't reflect very much American anything, not American values, not American issues, not American anything. So I think that, again, the two were very tightly associated for some time, and again, for better or worse. Now they are being de-linked. Lisa Anderson says that's highlighted in the way that Americans link women's rights and human rights, and Egyptians see it differently. I think Americans tend to associate women's rights with rights in general. And so women's rights are human rights and so forth and so on. What I think is very interesting is the extent to which, for example, if you look at Sisi's cabinet now, it has a striking number of women in it, talented, skillful, and obviously very senior women in the Egyptian government. And that is not particularly strongly associated with the expansion of human rights in Egypt. So I think what you're going to be seeing is, again, a little bit of a loosening of those kinds of associations that Americans tend to take into the world. 
you're going to see more and more women in positions of, of sort of public sector authority and governments and so forth and so on. That's not going to be particularly strongly correlated with growing democratization or human rights or any of the other kinds of things that we associate with it here. Elinud Asharach tends to agree. We start at the same place. I don't think you can escape Anglo-American feminism if you're studying the field. The theories, the activism, and, and even later, the backlash against white feminism and the experiences of other non-white feminist movements and intersectional feminism. These are very powerful ideas that shape a lot of feminist thoughts and feminist debates. But even so... I don't see us as moving to being in the same position as the states because it's more community-oriented rather than the individualistic kind of cultures that, that dominate most of the debates in, in the states. But I would argue that there is a lot of interest in many Gulf countries in women's empowerment and that being a, a top-down project even if most Middle Easterners don't seek to make their country identical to the United States, they still see the United States as an example to emulate. We often remark in Lebanon that, you know, supporters of Hezbollah, the staunchest supporters of Hezbollah, they certainly don't want to emigrate to Iran, you know, nor do they want their kids to study in Tehran University. There's no question. Nor do they want to go if they were really sick to an Iranian hospital or a Russian one or a Chinese one. On all of those measures, America is number one. That's an asset. And the ideals, values, and culture with which the United States has saturated the Middle East and the world keep it attractive. And a lot of that is because not so much an asset of the American government, but the American experience, economy, higher education system, political system, which remains inclusive despite what others try to do, is a strong pull, uh, and you don't find that pull, you know, you don't, nobody wants to be pulled to Tehran or pulled to Beijing or pulled to Moscow. That's partially why the United States, despite aligning on the opposite side of most Arab populations for much of the 20th century politically, remains up till today the country with the most alliances from any other foreign country. Today, American soft power in the Middle East and the United States' pull remain strong. American products, brands, and popular culture play an outsized role in daily life. A lot of that has to do with the power of the U.S. economy and globalization, but even more than that, the idea of America remains salient. That idea, the transformative power of the individual to create meaning and value, has continued to make inroads in the Middle East, and formal and informal U.S. institutions continue to help promote it. Sometimes that same idea has inspired people to line up against the United States government or its policies. But it's also helped make the world more recognizable to American citizens and policymakers alike. Next time in the podcast, we look at Middle Eastern views of the last few decades of heavy U.S. involvement in the region. This is the United States and the Middle East podcast miniseries. I'm your host, John Alterman. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please rate and review the podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, you can subscribe to Babbel on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts.